Ever flown into a big city at night when it's dark? Uh, if you have a window seat, it can really be a spectacular view. Uh, Philly, Dallas, Chicago, Seattle, wherever. And uh, looking out the window also offers some promise of how things might be on the ground. Passengers flying into Miami comment that as they look down on the city, there are sections that are uh, marked off by orange streetlights, or at least orange-tinted lights. And they try to make connections, you know, between uh, the orange bowl, maybe that's the reason, or other sunshine state notables. But down at street level, it's another thing. Those orange lights are there because the city fathers have designated them as particularly, uh, particular areas where there's high crime. As servants of the Lord Jesus, he wants us to live with a knowledge of ground-level realities because they provide opportunities to serve Christ. Today's topic, uh, about which we just read, uh, the healing of the lame man, shows us how the gospel advances in the face of real-world suffering and need. And so we're looking at Acts chapter 1, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 26. If you have a Bible and can turn to it, uh, you can look this time at the passage. <laughs> Acts chapter 1, ver, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 26, the healing of the lame man. Now, what, Le what Luke does is he links this chapter to what we've seen in chapter 2, and he does it from uh, three different perspectives. First of all, there is this amazing healing that's in the first 11 verses. And after the healing comes, uh, uh, his making sense out of what God does. He interprets what the Lord has done in, in the healing. And then finally, he brings us to an application point at the last part of the chapter. So, what we're going to look at is God's providence and then his interpretation of the providence and then how that makes a difference in the real world that we're going to face in the days ahead. Well, as we noted, uh, Peter and John are now going up to the temple to pray. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which was the last time that Jews regularly gathered for prayer. Um, our next gathering is 6 o'clock tonight. The twelfth hour, that's right. And uh, as, as they go up to the temple, they are surrounded by grandeur. Herod's magnificent temple it is, is strikingly beautiful. And then there's the, the, the vision of uh, the Kidron Valley below rising up to the Mount of Olives. And we might think to ourselves, they perhaps are riding a wave of post Pentecost euphoria. I mean, they have just witnessed and been part of the ingathering of and baptism of some 3,000 new believers in Christ. It was, from that vantage point, a beautiful day. 
But then they're brought face to face with suffering. As they come up to the temple, uh, their paths cross with this cripple who is also going to the temple for a reason quite different from theirs. They're going to pray. He's going to beg. And we're told in verse 2 that he is laid every day at the gate to the temple to ask alms. Now, alms is a phrase that is uh, like a deacon's fund offering. And um, it, it was either money given or um, giving in kind for the needy. And it came out of motives of love and compassion. Uh, love and compassion for the recipient, but also love for the giver of all gifts. Uh, love for the Lord. Uh, the idea runs through the Old Testament. Again and again and again, people were reminded to think about the poor. And you get to the New Testament, and Jesus says, when you're giving your alms, don't be like the Pharisees because they do it so that they can call attention to themselves. But when you give your alms, do it privately and secretly because he who sees in secret will reward you openly. And the idea of giving alms, you see, is rooted in God's character. He cares about those that are in need. And he calls his people to be like him in that regard. Compassionate, merciful, outward facing, particularly to the strangers, and generous. Uh, and this idea of almsgiving stands in stark contrast to um, giving or making payments to the poor under the authority of the law or by compulsion of the law. Well, we're told in chapter 4, verse 22, that this man has been a cripple for 40 years. He was born that way. And so the, the, coming to the temple was an ideal place if you wanted to beg. People can see you with some regularity. Perhaps you get to know them. Um, the temple was a place that emphasized being generous, and uh, worshipers are schooled to be merciful. The Bible doesn't say, but it's possible that Jesus passed this man. And the Bible doesn't say either, but you cannot help but think that uh, he must have had these kinds of thoughts go through his mind. Why me? Why have I been born a cripple? Where was God when I was formed in my mother? And where has he been ever since? And... I can imagine him feeling some humiliation being there laid day by day and having people go by and look down on him in his comparatively helpless state. Well, seeing Peter and John, he turns to them and he wants them to give. And Peter says, well, 
we don't have any silver or gold, but what we do have, we give. Uh, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. But he can't because he's crippled. He doesn't have any strength in his feet. And so Peter reaches out, takes him by the right hand, and lifts him up. And immediately we read in verse 7, his feet and ankles are made strong. It's an instantaneous healing. It's complete and in that moment, his whole life is changed. He doesn't need a walker to help with those initial steps. He doesn't need any kind of physical therapy. He doesn't need any period of rehab. The man who's never taken a step in his whole life is now leaping for joy and praising God and together with, Jane, with Peter and John they go into the temple and everyone is filled with amazement and we think to ourselves wow <clears throat> well back in chapter 2 you remember uh, Luke has said that there were numbers of miracles that the disciples performed right after Pentecost and apparently this is a representative one and he places it here because he's developing uh, this idea that the church is on the march the church is growing uh, people really are following through when Jesus says you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth but let's just pause and reflect a little bit what is the message that's here as far as our understanding of God is concerned? Well, he is merciful. Was anybody betting that morning that that man would be healed? My guess is not a soul if they were betting people. Zero chance. But the Lord does see, and the Lord does care, and the Lord reaches out to him in a most wonderful and unexpected way. So how about those places of deepest pain and disappointment in your life? This healing is reason to hope. Psalm 62, verse 8. I love it. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And Paul tells us the reason. It's because Jesus is is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think as is demonstrated here in this miracle. So no matter your pain, the grace of God is enough to meet you at the point of your need. So in this moment, won't you trust the Lord with whatever it is that's deep inside you, troubling to you? there is another connecting point. Peter and John have been touched by faith in the risen Christ. That's their personal experience. And 
his mercy toward them. And so seeing this man and recognizing his need, they move toward him. They take the initiative. And they relate to him with compassion. Now think for a moment about the people that are in your life. In some cases, your meeting them may appear to be somewhat serendipitous. But don't we believe in God's providence over all things? And so there aren't just chance happenings. When we have contact with another person, it's by divine appointment. Researchers tell us <clears throat> that it takes between a tenth of a second and seven seconds for us to read another person. Between a tenth of a second and seven seconds. We make nearly instantaneous evaluations, judgments about others, i.e., uh, their education, uh, socioeconomic status, um, whether or not there are kind of people. And what do we do with that information? We do something with it. We make an instantaneous evaluation, and either we move to engage with them, or we move on to the next thing. A few weeks ago, we noted God's goal for the church. It's in Ephesians it's to unite all things in Christ. And so Covenant Church, our congregation exists. We are a place and we exist as a community. Having made internal evaluations, judgment calls about one another, we exist to follow through to make this a more and more suitable place in which the Holy Spirit dwells as we extend ourselves in kindness and mercy and sympathy to one another. It's not about whether my instantaneous evaluation of you makes me feel comfortable in your presence. There's something much more fundamental going on. When you're touched by the gospel, you move toward people he brings into your life because the Lord has been merciful to you. It's that simple. And it's compelling. You're touched by the gospel, you move toward people. You don't stand back and say, well, I don't know if I really want to relate to that kind of person. He's compassionate, he's merciful, and he calls you to be like him in those regards. Well, what an amazing miracle, right? Now, the Lord calls us not only to take account of what he does, but he also calls us to study his workings in our lives. Do you ever think about that? You're not just to sort of gloss over what happens. You're to think more deeply, go down under the surface and reflect on what the Lord has done. Really? Where does the Bible teach that? Well, here's one verse. It's not the only one. Uh, Psalm 111, verse 2. We're called to study the works of the Lord. And that's 
exactly what Luke does for us now in this next section. We've looked at verses 1 to 11. Now we're going to focus our attention on verses 12 to 16. The man is jumping around, jumping for joy. He's clinging to Peter and John. I suppose if he could, he's also pinching himself to see if this is really what he thinks is happening, or is this just a dream? And the people are amazed, and they run together to see what is, this is all about. And Peter seizes the opportunity, and he explains. Please look now with me in verses 12 and following. He says, first of all, this miracle is not about our piety. It's not about our power. John and I don't have, somehow have a corner on being able to do miracles. This is about God's plan to glorify his son Jesus. See it there in verse 13? And it is about your sin. Again, verse 13. You delivered Jesus over to Pilate. You denied him and asked for a murderer in his place. You put to death the author of life, verse 15. But God, who is more powerful than all your sin and all your evil designs, he raised Jesus from the dead. Miracle of miracles, verse 15. And we, Peter and John, we are witnesses of this miracle it is mind-boggling this man has been restored to faith verse 16 been restored to perfect health through faith in Jesus now please notice some of the connections here first of all Peter is saying in no uncertain terms he's not ambiguous here you Jewish people were complicit in the death of Christ. And I am saying, J. Peters was complicit in the death of Christ. And you were complicit in the death of Christ. Hanging on the cross and dying, Jesus bore our just guilt. And he satisfied God's wrath in so doing. But God raised him from the dead to give new life to any and all who believe in him. Now there's another point of relevance here. And it's about seizing the moment. Explaining God's healing the lame man fits with Luke's overall purpose in his book. How? He's writing to and he's writing for Theophilus, who is at best a baby Christian, and for subsequent readers like you and me. And he, is, he has described the results of Pentecost in verse 2, and now he goes on to show how the early church responds to God's providence. Peter takes advantage of the situation to direct the conversation to Christ and to his saving power. Notice, there's a miracle. What do we do with it? Well, let me tell you. It's, relink it's linked to Jesus, and it's linked to your sin. He makes the connections. 
for the audience. Now, if Luke is writing to show God's providence and see that as a springboard for the church's growing witness, then might it be the case that that applies to us too? Suppose you encounter somebody new. In an instant, you make an evaluation. And the next moment, perhaps the Lord will give you the opportunity to direct the conversation to Christ. I mean, to do so, wouldn't you be walking in Peter and John's steps? I think so. And it seems that you'd be trusting the Lord to guide you and help you be a blessing wherever he leads you. Who knows the number of people that are going to cross your path in, next, in this next week? And who knows the needs that will be re represented in their lives? Well, we first looked at this amazing miracle. And now what we've done is touched on how Peter and John come to make the most of the moment. And we come to see how Luke places that in his book to show us the expansion of the church. Well, what's next? The last section, verses 17 to 26, point us to valid application. That's what the Lord is always interested in. Valid application of the scriptures that he brings to bear on our lives. So, please notice the apostles' posture here. With the lame man, they're outward-facing and merciful. Outward-facing, merciful, and generous. And with the entire crowd, they direct the conversation to the gospel. And now what? There's a most compassionate call to action. And I want to underline the word compassionate. There's a compassionate call to action. Now, Peter and John might have distanced themselves from the crowd uh, in a kind of holier-than-thou uh, attitude. After all, they're the Lord's chosen apostles. Um, they received the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. They've seen thousands converted. Aren't they the legitimate insiders? And couldn't they view these to whom they're speaking as Jewish outsiders? Well, please now notice this last application section. It's informative. And I want to focus particularly on verses 13, 17, and 18. Verse 13, they say, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. And then verse 17, and now brothers, I know you acted in ignorance as did also you, your rulers. And now verse 18, what God foretold by all the prophets, he has fulfilled. You link those together, and what do you get? 
the apostles are building on a shared ethnic and religious uh, bond with the crowd. They're not enemies. They're distant family members. And those commonalities with the crowd are further developed. Uh, verses 19, 20, and 26 in particular uh, do that. Listen. Repent, therefore. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send Christ appointed for you, even Jesus. God, having raised up his servant, sent him first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Family. Shared view of God and his prophets. A common desire for God's blessing. What sweet words. What comforting words. What encouraging words for guilty sinners. Now, this call, repent, is not just for first century people but it's for us as well repentance is always in order we're going to come to the lord's table in a few moments and part of celebrating the meal together is to reflect on how we failed the lord repentance is always in order and so wherever you've been in the last week the lord will forgive your ignorance and he will blot out your sins and he will restore you to himself. It's an amazing miracle. It's been making the most of the moment to pass on the gospel, and it's finally this compassionate call to repentance. Sundays mark the first day of your brand new week. What opportunities will the Lord give you? That's the question on the table. And so why not pray, dear Lord, help me to be like Peter and John, seizing opportunities to move toward others, to treat them in the same way that you've treated me. Why not that? Second Corinthians, Paul tells us this. The love of Christ controls us because we judge this, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he died for all, that they who live should not from this point on live for themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. The call of Acts chapter 3 is... Live for Jesus in this week. Take the initiative to extend the mercy of Christ to people he brings into your life. Lord, bless your word to us, we pray. Thank you for this reminder. We pray that your mercy that has touched us so deeply would flow through us and that we would be the source of mercy for those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.